Hey Cole, are you ready for half-naked pillow fights and getting drilled all night long? That sounds like a Friday night to me. Well good, because this week I'm talking about the 1982 slasher flick, The Slumber Party Massacre. Oh boy, that is a title. Featuring the Driller Killer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited. Welcome to Second to Die, the horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. So yeah, The Slumber Party Massacre, a film from 1982, directed by Amy Holden, but more interesting than who directed it is the screenwriter, who is Rita Mae Brown. Before I get into all this, though, just a brief conversation about slasher flicks. Wait. Rita Mae Brown, does she write the cat mysteries? I don't know about that. She is an author. She wrote Ruby Fruit Jungle. I'm going to Google, but keep talking. (laughs) Okay. So, slasher flicks. I personally have always really appreciated a slasher flick. What's interesting, too, about movie genres is there's not a lot of definition or definitive definitions in the horror genre because... Not a ton of study has been devoted to it, but there's sort of a couple camps of people. A lot of people credit the first slasher flick as being this movie called Bay of Blood. It has actually like 15 different titles because that's what they did But back then. But Bay of Blood was made in 1971. It was an Italian giallo film. Giallo is the Italian word for yellow, but it refers to a genre that in Italy, it's sort of everyday and generic mystery fiction, but in the United States, when people talk about it, it's specifically Italian horror thriller flicks. And the reason it's giallo or yellow is because it comes from these little sort of crime novels that were really popular in Italy and they had yellow covers. So it's kind of like a Penny Dreadful situation. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. You could even look up some giallos and see if you can still get some. They would obviously have to be translated. I was about to say, I can't read in Italian. So a lot of people consider Bay of Blood to be the first slasher flick from 1971. But other people, there's sort of a camp of people that uh, credit Hitchcock's Psycho with the first being the first slasher flick. And that came out in 1960. But the reason that I wouldn't classify Psycho as a slasher flick and that some people say that that doesn't really qualify is because in Psycho... Only two people are killed. Also, what I would think and what others have said too is sort of a defining characteristic of slasher films is sort of this mindless violence where you don't know a lot about the killer. There's not really any sort of depth or psychological profile, whereas the entire point of Psycho is sort of the development of the Norman Bates character. So a lot of people would say that that's more of a thriller with horror aspects and not a true slasher film. I would agree with that. So 1971, you had Bay of Blood. To put that into context with people, Chainsaw Massacre was 1974. The original Friday the 13th was 1980, uh, etc., etc. So this movie, 1982, came out after the original Friday the 13th. And this is where I'll talk a little bit about the screenwriter, Rita Mae Brown, because a couple things. One, 
She wrote Ruby Fruit Jungle, which for people who don't know, is a semi-autobiographical story of growing up as a lesbian. And what's interesting about this is when she wrote this screen title, which she wrote originally under the name Sleepless Nights, it was originally written as a parody of the entire slasher film genre. But when the producers got a hold of it, they read it and liked it and decided to go in a serious route. So there are some kind of jokey scenes in it that she had written, but they tried to not make it a parody at all. So it just went over their heads. I'm not sure that it went over their heads or they just decided, you know what, we're just going to go with the serious route and and that's that. And I think it was well received. But to be honest, I would have liked a little bit more parody or ridiculousness in it because there wasn't quite enough for me to really find this enjoyable. But you can see in parts of it how some of it is so predictably over the top for the genre. So you can kind of see where she was going with that. Well, before you move forward with that, I want to talk a little bit more about Rita Mae Brown because I thought I recognized the author's name. She writes a series of cozy mysteries about a woman named Mary Minor Harristein, who is a postmistress, and her cat, Mrs. Murphy. And they have some of the best titles, such as Cause and Effect, <laughs> Whisker of Evil, Sourpuss, Puss in Cahoots, <laughs> Sneaky Pie for President, A Hiss Before Dying, etc., etc. And I just wanted to share that. Carry on. I mean... That's delightful. You know me. I love a good pun. It's so good. Also interesting, she dated tennis champion Martina Navratilova for, I think, a good while. But they ended up breaking up because Navratilova had concerns that coming out would hurt her application for U.S. citizenship, which honestly, back in the day, it probably would have. So there's that. And also, when she wrote this screenplay... The working title that she had on her first draft was Don't Open the Door, and that was scrapped. It's obviously, I've talked about it before in previous episodes, a common theme for horror movies, and I think films in general, to have multiple titles. But I find it especially interesting because horror movies, usually their old working titles are just, like, awful. Yeah. And Don't Open the Door is terrible. And also not really applicable because... There's a couple scenes that have doors in them because it exists in the world, but it's not like they're kill. It's not like um, the strangers, for instance, where going to the door is a big part of the plot or something like that. Yeah, it's it's whatever. Oh, I love the strangers. <laughs> I know the first one is good. Also worth mentioning, originally the movie was supposed to be 90 minutes long. However, the actual length of the movie, as is, is 76 minutes. Because the director said that they had a different ending, and then they ended up reshooting it to punch it up. And she said, quote, The original ending must have been lame, because I don't even remember it. I think it was the same, but without the pool. We ruined the pool in the reshoot, but it was fun. I can't wait. I'm going to spoil alert for you right now. The, <laughs> the revamped ending ain't anything to write home about either. But I can't even imagine how bad the original ending was. So... There's that. Another noteworthy scene that got cut was apparently the girls at one point playing with a Ouija board and spelling out the word death on the Ouija board, which I can see why it got cut. Although my initial thought was Ouija boards are so played out in horror movies, but maybe in 1982 that wasn't the case. But this movie has no supernatural element to it. 
So there's no haunting. The killer is not some sort of possessed killer. I don't know why the Ouija scene would be in there other than maybe it was just this kind of cliche thing. And that's why Rita Mae Brown wrote it in there as part of the parody situation. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Also, there is a lot of nudity in this movie. As one would expect. You did pre-warn me about that from the beginning. And they talked to some of the actresses about nudity. Nudity back then, especially in the 80s in horror movies, was so common. It's common now in movies. But back then, I think it was just this thing where girls got naked. And I think that's why she wrote it into the script. Because it's just one of those things that's so expected and also just kind of typical of that. And the director of the film, Amy Holden, actually got some flack because people basically said that she was a sellout to her gender for creating an exploitation film that sort of objectified women. And her response, I'm going to paraphrase, was basically, F you, bitch got paid. And if you want to be a successful woman director, then you do what your producers ask you for. And what they asked for was a slasher film. And I gave them a mother effing slasher film. She sounds like a good time. That's a paraphrase, but honestly, it's pretty close to what she said. She was like, I'm not taking any of this from any of you people. That was my job, and I did it. So, And I did it well. Exactly. That being said, there were some interviews with some of the actresses about the nudity scenes. And some of them, the girl who played this girl called Linda, her name is Brink Stevens, she talked about it and said that she was totally cool with it because she had done a lot of nude modeling. That's also very common for some of these 80s, I was about to say final girls, but they're not always the final girls. But a lot of these 80s scream queens had done nude modeling before getting into film. She basically said that she didn't really care because being naked didn't bother her, that everyone was respectful on the set, non-essential personnel are always told to leave during nude scenes, but that not all of the girls were like that. And there is a shower scene in this because why wouldn't there be a shower scene in this? No. But it's like a group shower scene. <laughs> so it's it's in a school. Like a- Oh, okay. I was about to say, like, they crammed like four people in a tiny shower stall in someone's guest bath. Sadly, no. But in that shower scene, some of the other girls apparently were not super comfortable with nudity and refused to show full nudity so they wore tape over their nipples so no shots showing them from the front could be shown which is why in that scene most of the girls as they're having a conversation they're shown from their backs interesting Mm -hmm. and i was just thinking about taped boobies the whole time tape titties yeah that had been some good tape waterproof tape it's a necessity like kim kardashian she used tape she does when she wears those like super plunging neckline gowns but her boobs are still like super high she uses a whole bunch of duct tape and basically constructs a bra out of duct tape on her breasts to like lift them up and hold them into place that's very crafty of her and so anyways amy holden was like i'm gonna do this and so for people who don't know who that is she went on to direct a few other films probably the most famous was mystic pizza which what (laughs) (laughs) i feel like you were about to tell me because you said which but like the reaction was on its way out I honestly have not seen Mystic Pizza, but it's, I think, a rom-com with, like, Julia Roberts or somebody. I didn't look up that movie. I just know that some people know it. And people talk about it all the time, but they talk about it in a way where it's, like, really stupid, but so well-known for being stupid that it has a following. I'm pretty sure no one talks about a movie called Mystic Pizza, because this is the first I've ever heard about it. No, seriously, it's, it's, it's a thing. People know about it. 
I bet you people listening to this will know about Mystic Pizza. But I digress. So that's basically, I think, all the premise to the movie. I'm just going to kind of dive right into it. To be truthful with you, this movie, I was not in love with this movie. I appreciate it for what it is. It ended up getting at least two sequels, I think maybe more. But I'm not 100% sure why, other than maybe just the whole premise of being able to show a lot of nudity and then some kill scenes is profitable. I don't know. I thought this movie was kind of basic. Again, I'm looking at this movie from right now in 2020, and this movie was made in 1982. So maybe I need to try to put my 1982 glasses on a little bit more and think of what this would have been like back then. But it just seemed so uninteresting. Most of the deaths happen off camera, which was very common back then because it's just easier. And so that's fine. There's a lot of continuity issues with this, which I'll talk about really just one major one. But still, I don't know. Anyways, let's dive right into this. So the movie opens with this girl, Trish. She's played by Michelle Michaels. And she's supposed to be 18. She looks like she's legitimately almost 30 in this movie. But I don't know how old she was because I spent a good 15 minutes trying to find Michelle Michaels' age, the actress. And you cannot find it. You can find where she was born. You can find all this. But she has, like, scoured the internet of her birthday. So good for her. A lady never reveals her age. Exactly. So her parents are going out of town. Oh, also, when she wakes up, because it starts with her waking up, you hear on the radio about how this deranged killer has escaped from prison. Oh, Dun, dun, dun. I wonder if that's going to come into play. Spoiler alert, it does. Anyway, so her parents are going out of town and not taking her. So, of course, she's going to throw a slumber party. Because that's what 18-year-old girls do. Anyway, very shortly after that whole explanation of the slumber party, they're at the school. And there's this woman fixing a telephone. She has this, like, fantastic ass. These high school boys hit on her. That's not important. But she is working and she has a work van. And as the high school boys are walking away because she rejects them, she is pulled into this van And immediately gets drilled. And by that, I mean she gets killed. With a drill? Yeah. To the head? To the head. Ooh. But it happens off scene. Oh. Yeah. And that's within literally the first five minutes of the movie. So this movie just jumps right into the killing. And I do appreciate that. Because I don't like when movies get super bogged down with boring backstory. So that was kind of nice. Sometimes it's fun when the drilling starts immediately. Exactly. Anyways, after she gets drilled, it is P.E. class. Because why wouldn't there be? Because if you don't have P.E. class, you can't have a shower scene. So there's like girls basketball going on. That's not important. But then this girl's shower is going on. And that's super important. Mm. Exactly. So everyone's naked in the shower and they're talking. Weirdly enough, Trish and this girl, Valerie, she's the new girl that nobody likes are making kind of googly eyes with each other. And I thought there was going to be more of that, but this is the only scene it happens in. Warm, soapy water. Yeah. So then right after the shower scene, they're literally just talking about kind of nothing, about how they're going to have this slumber party, whatever. After the shower scene, they're talking in the locker room, and Trish and her friends are talking. And then it's one of those scenes where Valerie is on the other side of the lockers. Yeah. And so she's hearing them. And they're talking about how they don't like her. Oh, well. (laughs) But it's funny, the only reason I bring it up is because one of the girls is like, I don't like that girl, Valerie. She drinks too much milk. 
What? I don't know what that means, but it might be one of my new insults. Is Valerie like lactose intolerant since she drinks a bunch of milk and then gets really gassy and is unpleasant to be around? No, there's no explanation. It's just, they they all look like they drink milk. I don't know. I don't know. It's really just not explained at all. <laughs> God. That, but, and at the same time, I don't get that insult, but it seems super shady. You know what I'm saying? She drinks too much milk. <laughs> yeah. So then they're talking about these two guys, I guess, want to go, but it's girls only, so they can't. But they're, I think, going to go crash it anyways. That's the plan. And one says, I've got some provisions for the party. And then someone says, "Which? what types of provisions or something like that? And he goes, you know, Doritos, Nodos, Bennies, Crystal Meth. So it escalates, like, real fucking quickly. Is like, this set in Florida? <laughs> actually know where this is supposed to be but it goes from doritos to crystal meth real quick just like in florida just like in florida so true so next thing you know trish is preparing for the party there is this kind of scene where somebody gets killed in the school but it was really dumb and boring and it was a chase scene which you know i hate so i'm not gonna talk about it so trish is getting ready for this party she's playing the piano and she hears a noise in the house and she's like oh my god what is it and then it turns out that it's their neighbor, Mr. Content, who was upstairs in their house, who comes downstairs, and she's like, oh, Mr. Content. And he's like, I just came to check up on you because your folks are out of town. And I'm like, that's not okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm just like, no. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, but don't worry because he gets his. Anyways, also, Valerie, the new girl, lives next door to them. That just seems very coincidental, but she does, and it's used in the movie. And in fact, they actually did end up inviting Valerie to the party, but after she had heard them making fun of her, so she respectfully declines and decides that she's going to stay at home with her little sister, Courtney, and make Kool-Aid. And actually, when Courtney is sort of back-talking her because she's the sassy little sister, which is kind of played out, but maybe it wasn't back then. Valerie looks at her and says, just like Jim Jones said, drink a Kool-Aid, which is kind of dark for Valerie. Oh, I like that. But they probably made white people Kool-Aid where you don't add like a whole cup of sugar. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, I'm not a huge Kool-Aid fan. Anyways, so then people start showing up for the slumber party. They're all giggling and laughing with each other. But the boys are going to crash the slumber party. So they show up and they stare in the window because apparently in 1982 you can do that type of thing. And the girls are getting changed all in the living room into their super skimpy pajamas. Yeah. So there's like a big scene where they're all getting naked and underwear and then pajamas. And actually some of them are really cute. They're like super short shorts and the tank top. Well, one of the girls has this thing. It's like this baseball jersey situation, but it's cut like a dress and comes down literally like basically to like an inch below her vagina. But I think it's supposed to be a dress. So that's all she wears, but it looks super cool. Hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at Valerie's house, Courtney has snuck up to Valerie's room and looked under her mattress and found her Playgirl magazine. Ooh. I know. I was actually surprised. And at one point in this movie, Valerie goes up and like sees that she's looking at it and grabs it and it cuts to a shot of one of the pictures and it's like guy butt oh it's a picture of guy butt 
But still, that's not something that you commonly experience in the 80s in a movie. So that was kind of nice. So after Valerie defines Courtney looking at that, Courtney is basically like, oh, yuck, kind of in a fake way. And Valerie goes, oh, faker, you're beating off boys in the fifth grade. And just so people know, that's like 10 years old and probably not okay. Anyway, so next thing you know, Diane's boyfriend shows up because she had told him to come and he wants to get it on, but they're not going to. This is all super boring. Long story short, they both get killed in the garage. Okay, so now I get to talk about one of the better scenes and it's the pizza guy scene. So basically at some point they ordered a pizza. Mystic pizza? It's not a mystic pizza. This is too early for that. Oh, okay. And so, actually, I think the whole premise of mystic pizza is that it's a pizza shop where the pizzas have powers, but I'm not 100% certain of that. (gasps) (laughs) And you're not doing this movie because... It's not a horror movie. That sounds pretty horrifying to me. Okay. Let's move on. on. Carbs with powers. Carbs are scary. God, that would be like... (laughs) That's a gay horror movie. Mystic pizza. Anyways. So... The pizza guy shows up, but when they open the door, his eyes are completely drilled out, and he falls down, face first, dead. I gathered that he was probably dead. Yeah. And so, the reason that I bring this up and I talk about it like it's a great scene is actually not because of that specifically, but because later on, there is this girl, Jackie, and she's played by, I think it's Andrea Honore, but I bring that up because... She is the you of this horror movie. Let me explain. I was about to say that this could go so many directions. Anywhere from, sorry, I'm late. I didn't want to come. All the way to, I want to know what the inside of an eye socket looks like. Well, it's neither of those, but here's the energy. So these girls are here with that dead pizza guy. And one of them goes... He's so cold. To which Jackie goes, is the pizza cold? And then Jackie takes his dead hand off the pizza box and says, well, life goes on after all. And eating makes me feel best. And I feel bad. Boy, do I feel bad. Then she takes a bite of the pizza and says, I feel better already. Really, I do. I feel very attacked. I do like food. Eating is probably my favorite thing to do in the world. So that is a pretty great scene. Honestly, that's probably one of the funniest moments of this movie. It's pretty nice. So after all that happens, the two guys who had crashed the party, they're in the house now. And they know that this killer is out there. So they're trying to find a way to escape. So they have the brilliant movie, like so many people do, to split up and try to run out the two different exits of the house, one the back, one the front. So the logic that they even explain in the movie is, well, chances are one of us will make it and the other one won't. And those are not good odds, so I'm not sure why that's the best plan that they have, but it is. Anyway, it doesn't work out for them. They both end up getting killed. Moving right along... The killer is then putting all the dead bodies in his trunk. And I don't know why this was included, but I found it very entertaining. The killer puts the dead bodies in and then literally does a head count in the trunk, like pointing and counting out loud to make sure that he has them like some sort of weird chaperone on a kid's field trip. Well, you have to make sure you're being thorough. 
I think he was like, do I have all my bodies here? Did anyone get up? Have I misplaced a body? Have you ever misplaced a body? I have lost you in many a store. I get distracted really easily. This is very true. I feel like sometimes you can kind of tell just by the way I talk that I can be slightly scatterbrained at times and I get very tangential and very distracted. Well, you're also a very large man. So every time I can't find you, it's always like, how did I lose a person? True. Okay. So while this is all going on, Coach Jana from the school, the not-so-subtle lesbian PE coach, is coming to save the day because she had called to check in on the kids because I guess that's what you do. And while she was calling, the killer cut the phone line. So she's coming. She gets to the house and they can hear her outside. But one of the girls rushes to the door to let her in. And this is, I guess, the reason it's maybe called Don't Open the Door. She opens the door. There's no Coach Jana. But that girl gets drilled, like, super hard and she's dead. And then... They hear her again, and they're talking about they should go open the door. But Trish is like, hell no, I'm not opening that door. Oh, because they hear Valerie outside. So they're like, we got to go let Valerie in. And Trish is like, uh-uh, not on my watch, biatch. Because the other girl who opened the door just got killed. Anyway, so while they're debating it, they're up in Trish's room, and they had sort of like barricaded the door. And in what's actually kind of a cool, creepy, suspenseful scene... The killer comes in through the window very silently while, like, so the camera angle is, like, pointing at the faces. And so you hear behind them, he's, like, tiptoeing, you know, with this giant drill. By the way, I have not explained this drill. Let me just take a minute to do that. It is not, like, a little hand drill situation. It's, like, one of those drills that's, like, four feet long. I don't know what you use that stuff for, but it's, like, a four-foot-long drill. And then it is, like, he has to hold it with two hands. So it's like that kind of a thing. Interesting. Anyway, so he's got this drill and he's sneaking up on this girl. They turn around, they see him, but they can't run out of the room because the dresser is there. So they kind of run to the corner. I don't know why, but they run to the corner. But then Trish grabs a bat and hits him. So they knock the guy down and he kind of like loses consciousness for a quick second. But instead of like, stomping him in the face or something like that they just run and start trying to push the dresser outside of the door or away from the door so that they can get out because that is i guess the smart decision that they want to make instead of just killing the killer right then and there and this movie could have been a lot shorter yeah so anyways the killer of course comes to while they're doing it and jackie who is the girl in there with trish basically gets caught by the killer and he I think stabs her with a knife or something like that. But it's funny because Trish looks back and Jackie's giving her this look like, help me, help me. And Trish is like, bye girl. And runs. God. (laughs) So Trish fucking bolts. She's like, it's a shame you had to die. Run, 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 run. Anyways, at this point, for whatever reason, the killer goes to the living room and hides underneath a blanket. Like you do. This is getting towards the end of the movie, but there's a lot going on. One thing I'll say is Valerie has come over to the house at this point and knows that there's a killer. So she's in the basement and she grabs a power saw and tries to run upstairs because she knows the killer's in the living room at this time. And she runs up the stairs, but it's a power saw hooked up with an extension cord because it's 1982. And she runs out of cord. (laughs) (laughs) Does it yank her down the stairs? And it kind of yanks her a little bit back. Yeah. So that I thought was kind of cute. Anyways, 
The killer up until this point has said zero lines. He has no lines in the movie, which as I was watching it, it was actually one of my thoughts where I was like, this is something I like about this being a slasher fic. We know nothing about this killer other than he was this escaped convict that they threw radio. There's two other radio parts in the movie. They kind of talk about how he had massacred a bunch of people a long time ago. And in fact, I think this is in California because now that I'm thinking about it, I think the radio said this in Fresno or something. But there's no development for him. He's just killing. You don't really know why. That, I feel like, is a good thing in a slasher film. And up until the very end, he does not say anything. But then, when he's about to kill Trish, he delivers his only lines of the entire movie, which are the following. You're pretty. All of you are very pretty. I love you. It takes a lot of love for a person to do this. You know you want it. You love it. Yes. And at this point, I'll point out that the the actor who played the killer, Michael Villela, he on the set did not interact with the other cast members because he wanted to be in character and stay extra creepy. So he really didn't talk to them very much. And the killer's real name, just as a side note, is Russ Thorne, which apparently is supposed to be a nod to Damien Thorne, who is the kid from The Omen. Oh, okay. Anyways, that's not really relevant, but I thought it was kind of funny because he has so few lines and he didn't talk to the cast. And then this is like the creepiest of the creepy lines. It's very rapey. Yeah, I think it's also supposed to go along those lines of, in a lot of these slasher films, there's this sort of underlying motivation that the killer is killing these girls with some sort of a sexual undertone, either like sexual rejection or, you know, in Psycho, he kills girls that arouse him because it's this like denial of a sexual urge and so i think that there is always going to be some sort of a sexual undertone to to a lot of these movies and these slasher films so as that's happening valerie comes charging out of the basement and she has traded in her buzzsaw for a machete which i guess people just keep in their basements so she has a machete and the killer right as he's about to try to kill trish He sort of raises the drill and Valerie chops the drill in half with a machete because it's um, a prop. So anyways, she then chops his hand off with the machete and he's like freaking out and then slashes his stomach and pushes him in the pool. And so then he's in the pool and he's presumably dead. And that's what ruins the pool. I'm guessing what happened is they put a bunch of red dye in it and probably didn't have advanced technology of dye that was going to come out of pools and have a weird feeling they probably dyed this poor person's pool red. Anyway, you think that's the end, but then it's not. I wonder if maybe, no, the original ending was longer. Anyways, Valerie and Trish and then Courtney is also out there are all, I guess, sort of being traumatized (laughs) because all this just happened to them, but they think it's over. Well, lo and behold, it's not over because the killer comes I guess not, they don't show him jump out of the pool. They just show him attack them again. Interestingly enough, the killer is not wet in this part of the movie. So they show the killer attack them again. And I have a weird feeling that this has to do with the reshoots because in the original ending, there was no pool. Uh, okay. So he's not wet. He attacks them again. He is about to jump onto Valerie. And as he jumps on, she grabs a machete, raises it up, and he impales himself. And then he dies, essentially. And that is the end of the movie. And then... It only really ends with Valerie, Trish, and Courtney just sort of sitting there very shocked and traumatized. It's just kind of a cutout at the end of that pool scene. There's no 
resolution or follow-up, but that was pretty typical of movies back then. Yeah. So it's pretty intense. And I'll also follow it up by this little fact that I just know, because I haven't watched Slumber Party Massacre 2, but I do know that the main character in that one is Courtney from this one, but she was recast, I think, because it happened a few years after this, and the actress probably didn't look the right age or something. Yeah. Either way, Courtney, who survived this one, ends up being the main... I think final girl in the second one. Interesting. I was wondering. Yeah. It's kind of weird because she did not have a big role in this. And I guess maybe they thought that they would just expand on the character a little bit. Also, Courtney is young enough to maybe still be in high school for the second film. Yeah. Whereas the other ones wouldn't be either way. All in all, this movie originally, I was going to say I didn't love it. Now thinking back on it, I didn't turn it off. I've watched worse things, but it wouldn't be my favorite film. Not even of this genre, not even of sort of the early 80s slasher films. But I would say if you want to watch it, or if you like seeing naked women, go for it. I just feel like Pornhub's easier. I know. That's the thing is, we have the internet now. So maybe back in the day when you didn't have the internet and it was all paper magazines, seeing a movie with live naked people would be a lot more appealing. I could see that. So anyways, that is The Slumber Party Massacre. Now, tell me about what you're going to talk about. All right. So what I have for you today, instead of what I have been bringing, which is like really big names, really big publishers, is actually something from an independent publisher. But we'll, we'll just get into it. So today I'm going to talk about Old Farmer's Road by Zayn Morrison. And this was published just, a f- oh God, 2015 was five years ago. Mm-hmm. So much time has passed. Anyway, in my mind, I was like, oh, it was just like two years ago. But no, Jesus. All right. Anyway, the cover is pretty simple. It's just kind of like a face staring out of the roots of a tree, which is fine, except there's like nothing about a tree. Hmm. I like it, actually. It kind of has this pagan vibe to it. Yeah, it's very, like, horned god of the forest kind of thing. It's also striking. Like, if you were looking through titles, I feel like it would catch your eye. Yeah. Anyway, let me go ahead and read you the blurb, which actually gives away a lot of the book. But that's fine, because I'm going to talk about different things about it. After moving to Minneapolis, Cecilia is befriended by Isaac and Elsie, siblings who have kept a dark secret hidden about their past for countless years. As her body is taken over by a demonic force, she finds herself an Impa, a rare and supernatural creature who lives off the flesh and essence of her victims to stay alive. With the bloated bodies of missing teens beginning to surface, the voice of the old farmer inside her head begs for just one more. Consumed with the macabre environment, the urge to feed takes control over not only her body, but her soul. And soon Cecilia comes to a realization that giving the voice exactly what it wants will never be enough. That sounds good to me. It does. Except that's not really what's going on. (laughs) Okay. So here's the thing. I found this book on a list because I was trying to find like, different authors, different publishing houses, that sort of thing, and gave it a shot. And it's kind of like horror, except it's also kind of not. I didn't realize at first that it was a YA book. 
because there's nothing that indicates Cecilia's age. And so I guess in my mind, I was picturing like young adult, not like young adult as in like young adult novel for teens, but like a woman in her early 20s. Instead, I got a teenager, which is fine. It's just not what I was expecting. And then there were some like really Twilighty-esque feeling. Not necessarily like directly. I guess I just mean like it had that paranormal romance YA book feel as opposed to a horror novel feel. I see what you're saying. It's just like how... I, keep in mind, I have not read Twilight, nor do I have any intentions of doing so, but nor have I seen the movies. But it'd be like someone saying, oh, this is a vampire book. You should read it. And then it ends up being this kind of like garbagey, young adult romancy situation, like that kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of what those audiences want. And I feel like sometimes when people are writing for a teenage audience, they don't think that teenagers like scary stuff. Because not all teenagers were like me. But they do. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with YA books. I am a youth services librarian. And you know that I personally read plenty of YA. It just wasn't what I was expecting. And like I said, it just felt more like a paranormal romance that honestly didn't even actually like try and take the romance anywhere. Like I felt like there was a romance that was going to start and it never really happened. I don't know. I will just get into talking about it. Yeah. And I'll say this too. Like, you know, I don't read as much as I used to. But when I do read, I frequently read YA books because it's easy things I can read in like one day. Like I can read the whole book and stuff. So I have no problem with YA. But I find that YA horror is usually disappointing. Yes, I agree. Except I did read a book that I will do in a future episode that was fantastically done. And it's a YA book, and I'm actually really excited to talk about it. But that is an episode for a future date. One thing I did really like about this book is it the first chapter opens with a very traditional horror scene. You know how, not all, but a lot of horror movies, you'll get a little snippet with like a character or two that only live for the duration of that scene. And they encounter, like, the monster of the movie and get killed. And then it jumps to the main characters. Yes. I don't know if there's a word for that. But, like, that sort of style. We get this. So, the book opens with a boy named Robert. And he is leading his girlfriend, Allison, across Old Farmer's Bridge, which is just outside of Minneapolis. And she's really nervous. And he is hearing just one more, just one more over and over again in his head. And he leads her across the bridge and then a ravaged dog. And by ravaged, I mean like its intestines are hanging out of a gaping wound in its side, attacks and kills them both. Ooh. And that's the end of the scene. And that's how the book starts. Yes. That's like first chapter. Prologue. It may be a prologue. It may be chapter one. I can't remember. But that is the first like part of the book. Okay. So I did like that it did kind of that classic structure. It was an interesting scene. But let me just go ahead and pop in here and talk about what impa are. Because impa are not actually a real thing. Well, they're not a real urban myth. They are made up for this book. Which I appreciate the author doing that. However, it's a little bit kind of like all over the place. 
<laughs> is it are they based off of a culture I, you're about to tell me but no they're not based off of a culture that i could find the problem is so i tried to google it the problem is there is a character in one of the zelda games named impa oh and that is all you find you can even do impa urban legend and it's like nothing but links about zelda fandom wikis blogs like everything i don't know how important this character is but she better be fucking important because there's enough stuff out there about her (laughs) like it was very frustrating so for all i know there is like a teeny tiny very local myth about something called an impa and i just couldn't find it because it was buried too deep in the world of google but in this story they're kind of like vampires except they basically suck like your soul and your life essence instead of blood. Though I think they also like drink the blood. I don't know. It's not described to the best. The feeding scenes are more described as the feeling of feeding as opposed to what they're actually feeding on. But you're kind of left to believe that they like bite into them and then drain their soul. It kills them either way. Yes. Okay. Yes. It kills the people, but apparently they can also turn into ravaged dogs. Not normal dogs. Wait, the people turn into it or the if it the impa do. Oh, so they like shapeshift. They can shapeshift, but that's not how they feed. They I mean, like teeth extend. Like a vampire. Okay. Except the author always says from the roof of their mouth, but she means gums. And so when they shapeshift, they shapeshift into a dog that has its gut spilling out. Yes. Okay. Which is fine. Like, it's a scary image. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't seem practical. But, I mean, who am I to tell a supernatural being what's practical? Yeah. I like the concept that this author was going into this book with. I feel like the execution could have been a bit better. But I'm also saying that as a reader, not as a writer. I've never written a book. Who am I to judge? So there's also that. I did not enjoy reading it. I will say that. So we meet Cecilia. She is our main character. She's a teenager with a bad attitude. She's in a bad mood because they used to live in Los Angeles and they moved to Minneapolis, which would put anyone in a bad mood. Yeah, I mean, first of all, is there a teenager that's not in a bad mood? And second of all, I don't know. I've never been to Minneapolis, but... I mean, it is what it is, right? It's a city. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger than New Orleans. I did look up population-wise. I did look up the population there for a point that I'll get to in a minute. But it's like 50,000 more people. Like, it's slightly more populated. But that's actually not why she has such a bad attitude about it. She has a bad attitude about it because she had to leave her boyfriend behind. Her boyfriend, who is older. We're not told how much older. We just know he's not in high school anymore. So we continue the theme of this podcast (laughs) of people having inappropriate relations with underaged people. Because here's how I feel about that. I remember when I was in high school and honestly, even in middle school, I had a lot of friends who were dating guys in their early 20s. Like, I remember I had a friend in seventh grade who was dating a guy who was in the Navy because there's Navy based where I grew up. And I just like, newsflash. If you are like 13, which I think the main character in this is 16, he might've been 18. Like it might not actually be this bad. I'm going on a rant. 
But if you are 13 and you are dating a guy who's like 19, 20, he's not some like cool older guy who thinks you're super mature. He's a pedophile. Just like, so you know. (laughs) I think there's sort of that thing that they try to portray where the high schoolers, especially the high school girls, think it's cool because they're dating the college guy or something. When in actuality, it probably just says something really bad about that college guy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not okay. But anyway, very shortly into the book, there's not a whole lot of lead into it, which I kind of appreciate. Cecilia meets Isaac and Elsie, and things pick up pretty quickly. They go to a party that night. And while they're at a party, they pick up a girl named Julie. Here's the thing about Julie. Julie is an adult who goes to high school parties to pick up high school boys. But it's fine. She doesn't live long. Yeah. So they pick up Julie and they go out to Old Farmer's Road, which leads to Old Farmer's Bridge, which leads into like a swampy area. And I didn't even look up if there are swamps around Minneapolis. I realized that like swamps up north are possible. I'm just used to thinking of swamps as like a Louisiana to Florida kind of thing. Could be a different thing. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. I don't remember anybody talking about any swamps anywhere, but it wasn't Minnesota. So yeah, when they get there, they tell the urban legend of the old farmer. I have it summarized. So I will tell you very quickly. Hundreds of years ago, there was an old farmer who lived in that area, kind of away from town across the bridge. And he was believed to be a devil worshiper, as well as his children. And so a witch in town used a puppet to make him mortal. For some odd reason, the townspeople were okay with the witch, but they weren't okay with him. And then the townspeople killed his dog. There's really no reason for, like, that carries no point. It's just mentioned in the urban legend. They killed his dog, and then they strung him up. Did he Uh, do anything to these townspeople, or is this just, like, prejudice against Satan worshippers? You find out that one of the townspeople was killed. By him? No. So, spoiler alert, but it's later in my notes. (laughs) You don't have to tell me right now. Spoiler alert, Isaac and Elsie are his kids. Oh, okay. What happened was Isaac killed a townsperson and led them back to his father and they blamed his father and they strung him up but the kids who were isaac and elsie hid in the woods and only months later took his body down and legend has it they're still alive because they eat the flesh of their human victims so at this point cecilia does not know that isaac and elsie are the old farmer's children and are they impas or is this totally unrelated to that they're impas okay and you'll find out in about two seconds how humans are turned into impas can i just say that every time you say impa in my head all i can think of this is how my scatterbrain is working right now i think of oompa loompas but you're saying impas so in my head when you say it i think impa limpa continue (laughs) so They get to Old Farmer's Road, they cross Old Farmer's Bridge, and a ravaged dog comes out of the woods. Somehow, mysteriously, Elsie has gone missing. Hmm. But the ravaged dog comes out of the woods, runs down Julie, kills Julie, 
and wants to kill Cecilia, but Isaac stops it. And Isaac feeds Cecilia a stone. Like a rock? Yes, like a stone. And she passes out. What we find out later is that Impalimpas produce stones in their stomach that they can throw up and feed to humans, and it turns the human into an Impalimpa. Yes. This sounds suspiciously made up. That's because it is. <laughs> now, I mean, okay, whatever. That's fine. I don't... That sounds weird. But maybe that's what people thought about, like, vampires making people vampires at one point. Yeah. Like I said, like, I have a lot of respect for this author trying to, like, create this urban legend from scratch. Yeah. Do they ever give more of, like, an origin of where these things came from? No. The old farmer's just an impalimpa. I guess my issue or my, like, confusion about the stone thing is I don't get what kind of sense that makes, like, on any level. Because I get, like, the vampires, like, it's a blood exchange thing. And zombies, it's, like, a bite thing. Like, I get those. Those make, like, logical sense to me. The making a stone in your stomach specifically to reproduce seems kind of weird. But whatever. I'll suspend my disbelief for this. Let's go on. Um, the stones also have to be removed from the stomach to kill an Impalimpa. So, except for the case of the old farmer because he was weakened by the poppet. Okay. So I guess these stones are kind of magical things. I kept thinking of them as like concentrated dark energy. And that's how I explained it to myself. But it's never really explicitly explained to you. Okay. I mean, I guess it doesn't make me think that it's dumb or anything like that. I just find it strange. That's all. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with this concept. I just think it could have been tightened up a little bit. I would agree with that. Anyway, so this turns Cecilia into an Impalimpa. At this point, there's a very big period in the book where they're just, like, feeding and whatnot. I don't feel the need to go into it. There are like subplot points and other plot points that occur in this time. So like, it's something to read. It's just not something I really care about talking about in the course of this podcast. There are just a couple of like quick things to mention. Down the street from Cecilia, I forgot to mention, Isaac and Elsie live next door. So down the street from Cecilia and Isaac and Elsie is a woman named Miss Bernadette. And she's a descendant of the witch. Okay. But over the course of all of this, you know, there's the feeding. You find out that they have to feed every day. And here's my problem. Yes, you're making a face. And I feel like I'm about to mention the exact same thing that you were thinking. So when they feed, they bring their prey back to the old farmhouse, which is past the bridge. Because the spirit of the old farmer is still there, and he has to continue feeding as well. Which means that they cannot travel away. So here is my problem. These kids, who don't age, have lived there for over 150 years. Because I want to say it was like the mid-1800s. They've lived there for over 150 years. Someone has died every single day in the exact same spot every single day for 150 years. And no one's noticed. Yeah, that seems a little unlikely. It bothers me. It's a pretty big plot hole. That's not something like stones in the stomach that you can just look past. That's like, 
how is this town not noticing that one person a day died? Well, it's Minneapolis, but even still, even in a big city, one person dying every single day, like consistently in the same area and then being found. There's just no way. I think the concept is that they aren't found until like more recently. Like Julie's body is found. There's a scene of Julie's body being found. And actually, amusingly enough, there is a private investigator who is looking into the disappearances and she's involved in the scene with Julie found. And you find out that she is Allison, the girl from the opening scenes, older sister, and her ex-fiance is Robert, the boy in the scenes, older brother, which means that you had two people engaged and their younger siblings were also dating each other. And that is not a family tree. That's a family trunk. (laughs) Well, none of them, none of the couples are related in that situation unless they get married. Then they're only, they're related only by law. So it's okay. (laughs) It was just something I found a little strange. But yeah, my whole thing is like, how incompetent is the police force here where literally 365 people per year because Impa can feed together, but they have to feed every day. So they can feed on one person. But literally 365 people per year are dying in the exact same spot and nothing has happened about it. Yeah. I'm ca- I'm going to call shenanigans on that. Yeah. It's... Mm, mm. Anyway, jumping over that middle chunk and like a couple of other side plot lines. Like I said, there's a descendant of the witch that helped kill the farmer. And she says that she is going to help Cecilia and that she can cure her if she helps kill Isaac and Elsie by getting hair so that she can make poppets. Spoiler alert, her plan was to kill all three of them anyway. Because she doesn't actually know how to cure anybody. Exactly. Because you have to take out the stones and how are you going to do that without like eviscerating Going to medical school and like becoming a surgeon. That's like a commitment. It's a lot of work when you could just make a poppet out of clay. And kill them. Yeah. Exactly. So Isaac decides he's going to betray Elsie and gives Cecilia some of her hair. There's like a weird almost romance with Isaac, but they never kiss. They like wake up in the same bed one day, but that's it. They never kiss. There's no like talk about a relationship, but the way their dynamic is written, it like feels like it's going in that direction, but never does. But when I say that there's like a Twilight-esque feel to it, um, I'm sure you have seen the memes of like, say it, say it out loud. You're a vampire. It's been made into a lot of memes. But the point where he tells Cecilia that they are the old farmer's children has that same like, you already know kind of vibe. And it's like, mm, yeah, like, <laughs> I get it. You're so brooding and secretive. But anyway, so... Isaac gives Cecilia some of Elsie's hair. And then the morning that they wake up in the same bed, Cecilia rips out a chunk of Isaac's while he's sleeping. Does it wake him up? No. And you're going to find out why, but it still won't make sense. Okay. So during the final battle at the end, Isaac actually takes Elsie's poppet and rips it in half, which basically kills her. But then he cuts open her stomach and rips out the stones and she dies. But when Isaac's doll is smashed, nothing happens to him. And he's like, ha, 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 I knew you would try that. 
wigs are a wonderful thing. Here's my problem. It takes a lot of force to rip hair out of someone's scalp. If she is doing that to a wig, she's going to be snatching that wig. Oh, yeah. Straight off of his scalp. Yeah, there's no way. (laughs) There's absolutely no way. I just... mm, mm. Anyway, spoiler alert for the ending. If you don't want it spoiled for you, skip forward like 30 seconds. Isaac kills Elsie. Or Isaac kills Cecilia. The end. And so Isaac is just left alive. Yes. And that's the end. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I think the blurb sounded interesting, but the story itself, there's a lot of things that I have trouble overlooking in it, like the killing somebody every single day. And also, that's a weird ending to me. Yeah. Unless you're made to really develop a connection with Isaac, I don't get why you would have it end that way. Yeah. The blurb felt to me like seeing the movie trailer for a comedy where they tell all the jokes in the trailer. And then you go and you see the movie and you realize that you've already heard the best part. It's kind of how it was. As far as like rating it, I'm not really sure how to rate it. It wasn't awful. It wasn't poorly written. Like it was well written as far as like structure and sentence flow and like that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it didn't really feel like a horror novel. It lost the focus and the intensity that horror needs within the first quarter. So I think I would give it two out of five faces staring at you out of tree roots. That's a low rating. Low, but generous considering (laughs) the plot holes. I really liked the concept. Okay. I really liked the concept that the author was trying with. I really liked her writing style. I didn't see anything wrong with her writing style. I just feel like the details of the urban legend needed to be tightened up a little bit to plug a few of the holes. Two questions. Were there any cool scenes of like witchcraft with the witches trying to stop these things? And then also, were the death scenes, like where the Impalimpas are killing people, were those, I guess, worthy of being called horror or kind of glossed over? So there weren't really any scenes of witchcraft miss bernadette just had the dolls ready when that time came the closest you get is she's like praying in front of an altar one day when cecilia goes by but that's it you don't get like direct like rituals or anything like that and you never actually meet miss bernadette's ancestor you're just told about her through the urban legend retelling and as far as the killing I really am, like, I'm not trying to badmouth the author. And I feel like that's why I've accidentally done. Because I really do think that she did a good job with it. She just needed to plug up some of the holes. When she was trying to write the killings, it kind of felt like she was trying to go for how Anne Rice describes feedings. Mm -hmm. In the Vampire Chronicles of, like, ecstasy and pleasure. But didn't quite get there. Okay. Like, she was shooting for it, and she fell a little short. Maybe because those Vampire Chronicles scenes are described very sexually, and she's writing a YA book, and you kind of have to gloss over that a little bit more. So maybe I'll give her the benefit of the doubt that maybe she was holding back in how explicit she was being about 
the sensations. But basically, like, the killings were the person being killed is super terrified. The Impalimpas hold them down. They bite their stomach. The Impalimpa feels a whole bunch of pleasure while they're feeding. Pleasure and satisfaction. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess my only wondering for that is because those are probably the things that would make like me personally interested in reading a story like that Mm -hmm. is if they developed on maybe sort of like an occult side to it, or if there was some gruesomeness to the attacks or the killings. But I get that it's YA. So I don't know if people are interested in that type of thing, then maybe they would want to, I don't know if I could get past the whole like killing somebody every day and that not being an issue thing, because I feel like that's weird, but I digress. I'm just, yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of like mentioned how often they have to kill and then they just don't talk about it anymore. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, and we do this, but yeah. Da 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 da. I feel like that's so much. Like, can you imagine like, what if they're just trying to go about their day and they're like at a Starbucks getting a latte and then they're like, oh shit, the day's about to end. I got to find somebody to kill. Well, the voice in your head that says just one more gets more insistent throughout the course of the day. Oh, okay. So it's not like a... And they even say that Isaac tried to go through periods where he did not feed. So he would go days without it. But they explicitly say that Elsie fed regularly, just like she was supposed to. So it was like the... Almost like a vampire hunger. The urge would just get more and more and more if you tried to abstain. Yes. That's actually kind of cool. We're told that Isaac has tried to turn others... Before Cecilia. And he does say at one point that, you know, they tried to stop feeding and it eventually killed them. Oh, okay. Sort of thing. They just go mad first and then they die. But yeah, that's Old Farmer's Road. Well, speaking of killing somebody every single day. If you were in Minneapolis in this world with Impalimpas, would you be killed? Probably not. But who knows? So I guess I have two answers. Possibly because a lot of people die. <laughs> a lot of people are killed by the Impalimpas. It happens every single day. But probably not because there are like rumors about people disappearing in that area, even if they're not finding the bodies. And if I were at a party or like out at a store and two teenagers were like talking to me and then were like, hey, want to go out to Old Farmer's Road past Old Farmer's Bridge and I didn't know them and knew that people disappeared around there, I'd be like, hmm, better not. Yeah, that's fair. Would you die in Slumber Party Massacre? Well, it's hard to answer. If I were just a character in that, I would probably say yes because people do just kind of get killed randomly. But then the other thing about it that makes me want to say maybe no is because I'll just note this about Slumber Party Massacre. The killer is just a person. He has no supernatural abilities or strength or anything like that. So he's just killing people at this house. And for some weird reason, they think the best thing to do is to like lock themselves in the house and stay there and try to hunker down. Whereas I would be like running for a car. And granted, the two guys do try to escape, but they do it in a really stupid way that ends up getting them both killed. But also, 
Like I said, there's no supernatural quality. So I feel like what I would try to do is hatch a plan to be like, we're just going to gang up on him. He's got this one drill. At most, one person gets killed while we all grab him and overpower him. And then we just take him down. So I think I would get killed if I were acting dumb like everybody else. But me personally, if people would listen to me, probably not. And I think we would survive and take over. That's what I think. Moral of the story. Max thinks that if people would just listen to him, everything would be fine. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I think if more people listened to me, there would be less murders. And if you want to listen to Max more, you can find us on social media, (laughs) on Instagram, and on Twitter. And you can find the books that I have read on Goodreads, all under Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions on books and movies at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you. And feel free to just tell Max that you're not going to listen to him. And with that said, thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.